Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. And with that, here we go. We're off. Our first in-person winter Bible study in three years. And so I'm so excited about this one. We're going to do a, a deep dive into the life and writings of the Apostle Paul as much as we can over eight to ten hours. Uh, all those initial questions from the quiz, don't sweat those. We're going to get to all of those answers or at least explanations. There are not always answers, but there are some explanations. And tonight, as we begin, we're going to talk about the early years of Paul when he was better known as Saul of Tarsus. And we're going to explore a general timeline of his life, at least the timeline that we will be following, and then I want to finish with some basic assumptions about Paul that we'll have to keep in mind as this study progresses. Let's first take a look at how the study will progress. Tonight is session one. We are meeting Saul of Tarsus tonight, and we will go from his birth to his late 20s, maybe, maybe even 30 years of age. So we're going to cover 30 years in the next 50 minutes. Uh, January 18th, next week, session two, Damascus and the Desert. We'll talk about his first 15 or so years as a follower of Jesus. January 25th, session three, the Barnabas connection. There would not be an Apostle Paul as we know him today without Barnabas. Uh, some of you are surprised about that time period between conversion and him on his first missionary trip being almost 14 years. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you this, Paul is gloriously converted, comes back to Jerusalem after a little while, and he is wild on fire to tell everybody about Jesus, and he scared them so bad, you should read it, they went and put him on a boat and sent him to Tarsus. It's one line in the book of Acts, there he goes off to Tarsus, he does not come back for 10 years at that stage. He was a terrifying rolling bowling ball of butcher knives, and there is no way they knew what to do with him, and so he's, he needs some time to, to relax. Three, three years in the desert, or three years in retreat in Arabia, as he calls it, comes back to Jerusalem, and then about a decade back in Tarsus. One line in Acts, but there's 10 years in that one line, uh, so pretty interesting. Uh, February 1st, Session 4, the European entryway. This will be his second great missionary journey and the early writings of Paul as he crosses over into Europe for the first time. February 8th, Session 5, the third time's a charm. That is his third missionary journey we might call Paul's middle writings. And then February 15th, Session 6, when in Rome, we'll talk about that and maybe he was in Ephesus longer than we first thought. The journey to Rome and the prison epistles. February 27th, Go west, old man. We think the best guess is that Paul is released after his first Roman imprisonment, gets another shot to travel again, and seems to go to Spain. And then quickly back in Rome, that second trip to Rome. And uh, he does not survive that second imprisonment. And then March 1st, we'll talk really at an at a overview area of Pauline theology and how it continues to impact the church uh, to this day. Any questions? You'll have to yell at me if there are questions coming from online, if anybody's watching online tonight. Let's talk about these early years. The best we can tell, Saul, who would become Paul, was born around 5 AD. That's an educated uh, guess based on his life experiences. And by the way, this is the world of the Apostle Paul right here. You can see Tarsus there just due north of the tip of the island of Cyprus. So that's Paul's hometown. Thank you very much, Garrett. Uh, right there, and we'll, we'll talk more about the city in just a minute, but you can see the distance also between Jerusalem and Rome and Tarsus. Uh, he's about a decade younger than Jesus. 
Jesus is not born at zero. Jesus is born at 4 B.C., best we can tell. And so Paul is about 10 years younger uh, than Jesus. Uh, what do we know about Tarsus? Tarsus was a town in, southeast, in the southeast corner of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, on the Mediterranean Sea, due north of that tip, as I said, of Cyprus, about 350 miles from Jerusalem, if you had frequent flyer miles, Doug, 600 miles if you're traveling by foot, which Paul did when he made that journey, because you have to go all the way up through Syria and around. You can't get there from here. So just the trip from Tarsus that he made num numerous times to Jerusalem is 1,200 miles round trip, that alone. Tarsus was a distinct Roman city, very st strategic, very cultural, very political, very philosophical, very industrial. Uh, Caesar Augustus had visited the town, so had Mark Antony and Cleopatra together. And at the time of Paul, probably a half a million people lived in Tarsus. It's a very large, thriving city. And three things of note that speak uh, directly to Paul and his life growing up there. Number one, it was a hub for the textile business. And I'm not talking about hardwood floors and carpets, but I am talking about tents. Paul was a trained tent maker and seems to come from a family who had that trade. We're not talking about uh, polyforest materials that somebody's going to buy a tent and go camping in. This was leather and goat hair sewed together with great stiff needles, very difficult work, hard work. People would roll that up. There are no holiday inns as you travel. This tent was used as shelter for people as they traveled the roads. So Paul is a tent maker. You find that often happening. Uh, he doesn't go back to tent making just because he's discouraged with the preaching. He goes to tent making because he needs money to keep traveling when he's sometimes alone. And it was not unusual even for a rabbi to have a second trade uh, where they would support themselves at times uh, if, it, if it was required. Number two, Tarsus was a teaching center, particularly when it came to the Greek Stoics and other Greek philosophy. So you could think of Tarsus as a university town, which uh, sort of changes the shape of things immediately. Uh, everyone there was a philosopher in, in that sense. And there was a tremendous educational system, and Paul obviously benefited from that particularly when you read his public speeches and his use of Greek rhetoric. Very well trained in Greek rhetoric. He would have got that naturally in the educational system that he enjoyed, both in Judaism and uh, in the Greek surroundings of Tarsus. We think, well, we know that, Tars that, that Paul speaks uh, Greek. We know that he speaks and reads Hebrew. We know that he speaks and reads Aramaic, a derivative of Hebrew, and he probably... Uh, had access to some Latin as well. He is a highly, Paul is a, if you were to compare him to Jesus in many ways, he's the polar opposite of Jesus. Jesus, a uh, simple carpenter, never traveled more than 150 miles from his birthplace. Here's Paul, multicultural, multilingual, travels the world. Uh, and that combination in many ways is why Christianity grew to how it grew. And then the third thing about Tarsus, as it relates to Paul, there was a very large and thriving Jewish community there that Paul was a part of. Now, you sometimes wonder why, you know, why are all these Jewish communities scattered? Why don't they all just go back home to Jerusalem? Uh, but 600 years before Paul and Jesus, the Babylonians had destroyed Israel and Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And when that happened, there's a 70-year gap between that destruction and the, and the Jews coming back to rebuild their temple. So that's just getting back to the temple. So you really have probably another generation added 100 years between the destruction of Jerusalem and a, and a massive return. In 100 years, families just put their roots down. And so you have these scattered Jewish communities all over the world in the diaspora, and for the first time, with no temple, they began to build worship houses, prayer houses called synagogues. That's the origin of the synagogue. There was no 
such thing as a synagogue when the, the Jewish temple stood intact in Jerusalem. If you were going to worship God, you had to go to that temple. Now, you could make an offering and pray, of course, but any type of formal worship. The synagogue, in many ways, becomes a replacement uh, for the temple. And so Paul is in one of those dispersed communities. We don't know how long his family had been there, but they are obviously uh, well established. And that brings us to Saul of Tarsus's religious training and his religious views, and I'll let him speak for himself here. I think you have Philippians 3. Uh, I don't know if we have a slide. Yep, we sure do. This is part of Paul's testimony to the Philippians about who he was and where he came from. I was circumcised when I was eight days old, as required by the law. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. Now, this is, this is a, a concept with diaspora Jews that were often, when they would go back to Jerusalem, they would be mistreated sometimes by the Jerusalem Jews, like, why won't you come home? You know, and so they, had, they were always sort of having to prove themselves. And you saw that, uh, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of uh, Eli Weissel, the Holocaust survivor. After the Holocaust, he never moved back to Jerusalem, even though Israel had been established. He stayed in New York. And every time he would go to Jerusalem and give a speech, they would say to him, who do you, who do you think you are to come here and tell us uh, how to run our country? You won't even come home. So sometimes there was that element even back then. So Paul is not just saying, he's not just reading to you what he's discovered on Ancestry.com. He is defending himself as a genuine Jew, even though his roots are not there in Jerusalem. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. There is zero anti-Semitism in Paul. He is a Jew, just as Jesus was a Jew. That's where our faith begins. And I'll have more to say about that as we go forward. But he never, and this is important at the outset, he never saw Jesus as competition to his Judaism. He saw Jesus as fulfillment of it. Uh, and when he preaches in synagogues all over the Roman world, and he goes into Jewish synagogues to preach to both Jews and what are known as God-fearers, those who had quasi-converted, they were, they were certainly attracted to the monotheism. They could be Gentiles, but be attracted to the monotheism of Judaism. Uh, he never uh, attacked Judaism as being, this is all wrong. Uh, rather, We've got the right story, and Jesus is the final chapter to it. That was his approach uh, to, how, to how he taught it. Uh, he, he didn't depart from the, from the Jewish tradition. Um, so he's an ethnic Jew. He knows his ancestry, but he is also a Mosaic Jew. He is committed to the law of Moses, so much so that he was a Pharisee. Do you remember those guys? Those are Jesus' greatest foils in the New Testament. And those are Paul's guys. Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees, which means his father was a Pharisee. So he's in the fa that family tradition. Here's a reminder of the four major groups that were in uh, Judaism in the first century. Thank you. Four cultural groups. And you may have this, if not... Uh, I'll just I'll talk about it here real quick. Number one, there were the Sadducees. They were uh, the keepers of the Jewish temple. They emerged about the time. Isn't this, isn't this true with the institutions? They got together about the time that the when the temple got rebuilt. Well, you know somebody's got to manage it. We'll do it, and it started out very genuine. By the time of Jesus, the Sadducees, there is no right and left in first century Judaism. There is only right. It is a right-wing right society. But if there could be any group that was more 
To the left is the Sadducees. They are limousine liberals. They are wealthy. They have been running the, the, the temple institution for 500 years. They are theologically different than the Pharisees. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe that when you're done, you're done in this life. And that was a big sticking point between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, they were all about giving Rome whatever Rome wanted so long as we can keep our position in power. So they are very, very entrenched at the hierarchy. In fact, by the time of Jesus, the, the, the reigning high priest is a descendant of the Hasmonean dynasty, the last Jewish dynasty that ruled in Jerusalem. So they're royalty in that sense. Then we have the, the Essenes. Think John the Baptist, because at one point John the Baptist was a part of the Essenes. They have retreated into the desert, mainly because of the corruption of the temple. The temple is so bad, it's so far gone, it can't be reformed to let it all burn. And they checked out and went to the desert. Their main center was a place called Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1948. And uh, they believed that the final apocalypse was upon us, and they would survive as children of the light. Then the Pharisees. Pharisee means pious ones. And this is the family from which the Apostle Paul comes. They developed about 150 years before Jesus. Again, why? Because of the corruption of the Jewish system. Because of the sellout they saw as the Sadducees giving everything to Rome. And they, they said, we've got to, they were really a party of the people. And they were really saying, we've got to get back to doing it right. And in that regard, even though we like to kick them around, you know, because they hated Jesus so much. In that regard, Jesus is closer to them than any of these other groups that we, we will talk about. Because Jesus could be seen as a reform movement within Judaism. So that's, that's what they are. And then the final, the fourth group that Paul was friendly with are the Zealots. Founded by Judas the Galilean about the time of Jesus' birth. You know that census that took Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born there? Judas the Galilean said, that's it. No more Roman census for me because all they do is count heads to taxes. I'm not paying another dollar. And he led a revolt as Jesus is a baby being born there in, Jerusalem, in, a, in Bethlehem. They are, were theocratic nationalists, violent. They blamed everything that had gone wrong in their country on people that weren't pure enough. And on people that were foreigners. And they would do whatever it took. Uh, murder and violence to achieve their ends. Uh, they were exterminated by the Romans at a place called Masada. Uh, in 70 AD. And interesting enough, Judas the Galilean's great grandson. Was present at Masada as the leader of the last rebels. It's a, it's a, it's a, this is really a clumsy comparison, but, but maybe this will help. If you do see the Sadducees as the elite, that they will make almost any accommodation to Rome so long as they keep their power, they are in some ways more leftist. The Essenes, who have given up on everything, are retreatists. They've done, they've, they've, they've done and gone and built their... their uh, compound out in the woods and they are storing beans and water and waiting for it all to go down uh, the Pharisees are the first century equivalent of the tea party let's make Jerusalem great again that's really what they want to do uh, they, they are very conservative in that regard the zealots are insurrectionists they are terrorists. They will kill you or a Roman or anybody that you're with if they think that you aren't keeping the law and particularly keeping true to the 
to, to their way of, of, of seeing things. Very, very violent. And Josephus says that the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of Judaism in 70 AD, the, the zealots bear the most responsibility for that. Just an interesting aside. Within Jesus' 12 disciples, there is Matthew, the tax collector, which puts him with the Sadducees. Uh, John and Simon Peter seem to have been followers of John, which puts them in the Essene camp. Most of the others would have been very comfortable in the Pharisee camp, and he has one called Simon the Zealot, who was an insurrectionist. And they are all inside that circle. Because Jesus has appealed to them in a way that says, all of these ways are a dead end. And he was, and, and this is big in the Apostle Paul as he moves out into the Roman Empire. If you want to be at peace with this world, then it's my way. And so this is always at play in the New Testament. These groups always in the background. Uh, and, you know, and given our own uh, globalism and our own country, Europe, we can see all these pockets moving against each other all the time for many of the same reasons. Uh, and, and that's what you had in, in Jesus' and Paul's day. But back to, back to Paul, he is, he is a Pharisee, so he's in this third group. He's a pious one, conservative, let's get back to doing things the right way. However, he has zealotry inclinations. He is not afraid at all to be violent. And it's likely that he comes to Jerusalem. He's smart. He's gifted. He's educated. He comes to Jerusalem probably in his early 20s. Comes as a Pharisee. Young, full of fire. Do you remember what you were like at 22, 23, 24 years old? Change the world. Uh, he comes to Jerusalem He's a Pharisee. He, he becomes a, a under, comes under the tutelage of Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the one in Acts who when the, the apostles came before trial, Gamaliel had a very live and let live attitude. And he said, if it's of God, it'll go. If it's not, it'll fail. Leave them alone. Paul does not seem to follow his teacher's advice uh, at that time. Uh, Acts 8, Acts 9. This is what we learn. This is Paul in Jerusalem, late 20s, maybe 30 years old. He's a Pharisee. And what is he doing? Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them in prison. Acts 9. Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there, he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Philippians 3, we now move to Paul's own words. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And then to Paul's testimony in Galatians 1, and what we believe is this, that the earliest letter that Paul writes is Galatians. This is Galatians 1. This is the first thing he ever communicates to a group of people on paper. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion. How I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my what? In my zeal. It's the same root word in Greek as zealotry for the traditions of my ancestors. Now, in Paul's defense, he is very young, and I would not want things I did and said in my 20s to be held against me in my 50s. Would you? At the same time, not only is he young, he is very sincere. He absolutely believes beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is doing God's will. It's not, as strange as this sounds, it's not like, you know, we're dealing with a guy that's a sadist and just wants to go hurt somebody. 
and they seem to be pretty good targets. No, he is doing it out of religious conviction. He has been trained this way. And now in Jerusalem, the hotbed of, of, of Jewish nationalism, he has the, uh, an opportunity for this to really blossom. And if you look in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's executioners, the first Christian martyr, took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was, the, was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Uh, in Jewish custom, if you were one of the accusers of someone, now this, 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 would, this would throw out frivolous lawsuits right here, okay? If you brought charges that were worthy of death, and it was stoning, you had to throw the rock. So the guys taking off their coats are the ones that have made the accusations, and they're bringing it. Paul, Saul, is not making the accusation, but he is bearing witness to it. And he keeps their belongings safe while they kill this man. And he approves of what happens. Luke does a really good job of painting Paul, you know, as someone that we would not enjoy meeting or being around. And if and in our and and I've I've had some folks say, "Oh, that's too far," but I don't think it is. In our 21st century mind, if we were to meet the Apostle Paul as a 30-year-old young man, dark beard, Middle Eastern, and turban. He would more resemble a radicalist or a Taliban member than the images that maybe we have in our mind. Look at what he's doing. Look at what he's doing. And again, he is doing it in complete sincerity. Uh, he believes he is doing it for the right reason. That's exactly right. All that energy doesn't go away. Well, for about 10 years he sits on it. But he gets redirected. Uh, his conversion, we talked about the conversion of Paul in the Damascus Road. That was a conversion. But his conversion was like, uh, took years. Because he, you know in those 10 years he's gone back to Tarsus, back to have to sit at home with his parents. You know, now in his 30s, making tents. Uh, you know, that's what he's doing. He is processing everything that he's ever learned in light of Jesus. He is processing his own violence against people that he now considers his brothers and sisters. Whether the Jerusalem church knew it or not, they did Paul the greatest favor in the world by letting him sit still a while. Because even when he gets back, He's like, whoa, you know, let's go. And they, again, he's, he's in trouble immediately. But he changes, and we'll see this in the letters. Paul changes over time, like we all do. Mellows in some way, but he never quits. All the way to the end. When the, when the one you were counting on, who was being the persecutor, suddenly changes teams, you see why he caused trouble everywhere he went. He is a renowned persecutor, a renowned rabbinical scholar by 30. And then when you, like I said, he changes teams, you know, that's tough. Yeah, still consistent, still consistent. Other questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. I will answer that one. I'll give you, I'll give you a. We don't, we don't know, but a man of his age and position should have been by the time he's 30 married. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, right, there's that 10 years in Tarsus. When he goes back home, we don't know. Did, he, did, did she die? Did they part ways? Did she say, I'm not with, you are not the guy that I married? Did she? You know, if, if they... We started like this, and now you, you, you've changed teams. 
I can't, you know, do we know that? Do we know how well his family accepted him in those 10 years? He has a sister and nephew in Jerusalem that come to his rescue at one point. But we don't know anything about the family back in Tarsus, how they accept him. Because he's, he's not, remember, he's not just the Pharisee, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. No. no. Yeah, they're probably not real happy that you're going to go traipsing off to Jerusalem on some kind of, and see, I told you, you go down to Jerusalem, you have this experience with this carpenter, and now here we're back, you know, it's, who knows? I mean, never forget the, the human dynamics that are involved Everything that you think about all the family craziness you have in your life, I know you got it. Think about all those layers. You you don't think these characters had those same things? Of course they did. Of course they did. So we don't know about, about some of those things. Quickly to the timeline. So if we say Paul is born about five AD, Jesus is crucified thirty, Saul probably converted about 33 when he's late 20s, early 30s. That's, that's really an approximation. Uh, 33 to 36, he's in Arabia. He makes his first visit to Jerusalem during that time period. 36 to 46, you got to get out of here, Paul. You're too much. So they send him back to Tarsus. He's back there making those, grinding his teeth and making those tents. 46, Barnabas goes and gets him. This is so precious because it took to 46 A.D. for enough Gentiles to start converting to cause a problem. The church, which was predominantly Jewish, started saying, what are we going to do with these people? They don't get circumcised. They eat pork. Uh, they don't come to our, our festivals. What? And Barnabas says, I know just the guy. And he goes to Tarsus and gets him and brings him back to Jerusalem. And that puts him onto the center stage of Christianity at that point. In 48, there's that great Jerusalem conference where they talk about those very controversies of how do we let non-Jews into what God is, is doing. And Paul's answer was, you can't stop it. <laughs> You're not going to be able to stop it. Paul writes Galatians about that time. Goes on a second missionary journey, this time with Silas, he and Barnabas. Even though they were good friends, have a falling out. See, these are human beings. Paul writes First and Second Thessalonians. Third missionary journey, 53 through 56. Paul is in Ephesus and Corinth and writes the letters of uh, Philippians, Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, Second Corinthians, Romans. Paul returns to Jerusalem in 57, gets, him, gets uh, arrested immediately almost. He's imprisoned at Jerusalem, transferred to Caesarea. Uh, his enemies want him killed. Uh, the Roman leader there wants him set free. He doesn't know what to do. And Paul says, as a Roman citizen, I appeal my case to Caesar. Which is like saying, I'm taking my case to the Supreme Court. And so he's, it's granted, and that's why he goes to Rome. Uh, he eventually arrives there about 60. 60 to 62, he's kept under house arrest. And this is important. The book of Acts ends right there. That's the last uh, biblical record that we have of Paul in Rome. 62 to 64, we think he traveled further westward. In 64, Rome burns. Nero blames the Christians. Paul becomes a target. Probably a year later, maybe as late as 66, the death of Paul. Then the first Roman-Jewish war begins, the death of Nero, and then the end of the Roman-Jewish war and the fall of Jerusalem. There's a lot going on right there in those first 70, 75 years. Uh, of the first century. Four assumptions, as quickly as I can, and, and uh, y'all give me it. I'd like to be done in an hour, but you may have to give me an extra 10 minutes here. Um, number one, and by assumptions, I mean these are in my mind as I'm up here each Wednesday night. I hope they're in your mind uh, as we go through this study. Number one, Paul's main theological argument is not justification by faith. Though we as Protestants have held to that. It is actually the creation of a new humanity. This is why Barnabas went and got Paul. If we're going to start having this radical new group 
that's Jews and Gentiles and men and women and people from here and people from there and all these different backgrounds, but we're coming in under the same roof. How do we sort this out? Well, Paul's been sorting this out in his mind for a decade about how this fusion of the new humanity uh, works. Uh, in both the Jewish and Gentile cultures of the time, think of it like this. The gods had to visit. You, if you wanted to meet God, you had to go to that God's temple. In Rome, if it was Jupiter or uh, Artemis or Aphrodite, I want to worship this God, you've got to go to that God's temple. In the Jewish culture, if you're going to worship Yahweh, where are you going to go? You go to the temple. Paul was saying this. You are the temple. Now, this is a major, major leap. No religion had ever done this. You are the temple. And then it's easy to morph from that to say, we are the body of Christ. This is the theology Paul is working out. This is what I mean by the new humanity. It's sort of what I was saying Sunday about baptism as a sign of the new humanity, that Jesus is going to turn goats back into tigers. Paul was saying, we, we, we got a room full of tigers here. And we gotta, we're going to sort this out as this new humanity comes to bear in the world. You're not pinned down to a location. You're not pinned down to one particular rite or creed. God in Christ, by the Spirit within you, has come once again like it was once in the garden to live among men and women. That is really Paul's big, big theme. Not to say that justification by faith is, is not a part of that. That needed to be recovered as well. That had gotten lost along the way. But the big piece is God is, God is creating a new humanity and you're a part of it. Sure, that is a theological argument of his. But save for what? And the answer is this. Saved because you have been put into this new family that there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. It breaks all these religious barriers and the Spirit of God is at work within you. So those are not eliminated. The justification by faith is not eliminated. It's actually subordinate to the bigger picture of what Paul is trying to say. Uh, and he says this, you know, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians chapter 2. Don't you realize, he asked the same question three times. Don't you realize that you are the temple of God? And our answer is, no, Paul, we really didn't. Not till now. Because no one has ever said that. But Paul was saying it. That's what he was bringing from the work of Jesus into the world in which he lived. Two, second assumption. Paul was more mystic than theologian. What do I mean by that? We think of Paul as this great bookworm. Big nerd riding around telling people everything he's learned. How does his journey of faith begin? What happens on the Damascus Road? He has a religious experience. He has a blinding light experience. And we think, well, that's it. He got saved and he's on his way. Think about this. Have you ever read his vision of being caught up to the third heaven? How did he know to go to Europe with the gospel? He'd had a dream. He falls into a trance in the Jewish temple right before he is arrested. He says that Christ appeared to him once when he was in prison. Then a heavenly messenger appears to him in a typhoon in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea telling him that everybody's going to be safe. Once you see these, you can't unsee them. Uh, I'm 52 years old and I might have had one mystical experience. Paul had them like every other day. Where does that come from? As a Jewish cleric, Jewish rabbi, he would have... Those of you who have been to Israel, you ever been to the Wailing Wall? You're, have you seen the rocking? Do you know what they're doing? They're meditating and they're saying to themselves words of Scripture. And they're rocking because it's taken from one of the prophets, you know, don't, about not being still before the Lord. So you have, they have to keep moving. And it, they're opening themselves that God would speak to them. 
that's an ancient practice with all Jewish clerics. And certainly, Paul did those things. And for whatever reason, he was incredibly receptive. And so when you read these letters, you may have never thought about it before. Paul's just talking about doctrine. Go look, go all the time. Well, the Lord appeared to me and he said, and everybody's like, okay, Paul, everybody believes him. Everybody goes along. You know, if I come up here on one Sunday and said, the Lord came to me last night in a dream, people go, oh, what's happened to him? You know, but Paul had this happen a lot. So he, there is a mystical quality to Paul that we, particularly we Protestants, we don't always appreciate. And then the third, third one, and it's massive. Paul's pro-Christ position was very much an anti-Roman imperialism position. Not anti-Roman. Anti-Roman imperialism. I've got like uh, 12 pages that I'll say in five minutes. Um, We'll launch into this as we go forward. In Asia Minor, can we go back to the map, Garrett? Look how easy that was. Asia Minor, north of Galatia, modern-day Turkey, referred to as the East in the Roman Empire. Constantinople would be, Istanbul now would be up where Macedonia and Asia Minor come together there. Asia Minor was the center for emperor worship in the entire Roman Empire. So if you go to Rome and you have all the temples to the gods, you go to Colossae, to the region of Galatia, you go to Ephesus, you cross over into Greece and go to Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, all the places that Paul visited and wrote to, every one of those cities was a center of Roman propaganda, and every one of those cities had particular temples dedicated to a Caesar as God. Uh, In the New Testament, when you hear the phrase, Son of God. While the Old Testament uses that phrase generically, the New Testament writers have went and got the imperial phrase from the Romans and are using it in the New Testament to do this to the Roman Empire. Uh, I'm going to read a couple things for you here. First of all, it all started with Julius Caesar. You remember that guy? Not... uh, not Shakespeare's version, the, the, the real one. Assassinated Ides of March, 44 B.C. They have this massive funeral for him before the Senate and all of Rome gathers. And as the funeral is about to begin, a comet appears. I'm not making this up. A comet appears in the sky. And it hung in the Roman sky for seven days. And Octavian, Julius's adopted son, jumps up on the funeral pyre. And says, behold, divine Caesar ascending to the gods. And at that moment, emperor worship became a thing. Can can I go ahead and skip forward to the pictures? Look in the top right hand corner if you would. Uh, This coin was found. In fact, all of these inscriptions have been discovered in the last 150 years. And how it informs our reading of the New Testament. The coin at the top says Caesar Augustus on one side. And on the back is the comet. And it says divine Julius. It begins right there. After Julius Caesar, every Caesar thereafter for the next 250 years, when they died, were considered rising to the gods as a god. And the one who succeeded them became, you know it, the Son of God on earth. So let me read this to you. Uh, this is, I think I have this one for you as well. Yep, the praying inscription. This is on Augustus' birthday, just a few years before Jesus is born. Providence has brought our lives to the climax of perfection in giving to us Augustus sent to us and our descendants as our Savior. He has put an end to war and brought peace and goodwill to all men. Becoming God, He has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. So hear this gospel 
On the birthday of our God, Augustus, let a new era begin for the whole world. Does that sound vaguely familiar to Luke chapter 2? For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then the very words in the angel's mouth come from the praying inscription. So everywhere you go in Asia Minor, you find this. Back to those pictures, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish. In the top right corner, this is an inscription to Tiberius. Tiberius ruled from 14. He was the adopted son of Caesar Augustus. He ruled from 14 to about 47 A.D., so he was Caesar when Jesus was crucified. And if you'll see it up there, Caesar, D-I-V-I, the divine. And then look at this next phrase, Pontifex Maximus. Where have we heard that one before? Who bears that title today? The Pope. The first to bear it was Tiberius, son of Augustus. The highest priest. Uh, here on the bottom left-hand corner. Uh, this one is again to Augustus. And again, you see the S-T-I-F-A talking about, this is in the, the Latin, is talking about being a divine being. And then I'm going to skip forward a hundred years after Paul. The gray one in the middle is to a guy named Marcus Aurelius, if you ever heard of him. I'm going to read that one for you. My, I, I, I can't read that Latin anymore. This is an inscription praising Marcus Aurelius. To the emperor Marcus Aurelius Antonius, son of the deified Antonius, grandson of the deified Hadrian, great-grandson of the deified Trajan, great-great-grandson of the deified Nerver, he is pious, august, conqueror, father of the country, of the Rome and Senate, and the Lord and Savior of the world. And then the last one at the bottom is Domitian. Domitian uh, launched a terrible persecution against Christians at the end of the first century. I think Domitian is the main subject of uh, the book of Revelation. And on one side, Domitian's face, and it says, Caesar, the divine, and that goat on the back with the bounty around it says, Prince of Peace. So, when Paul goes into all these towns, and you say, well, why would everybody just go get upset with this guy that's preaching? Every time he would say, Jesus is Lord, in a Roman town, he was saying, Caesar is not. And that's the best quick summary that I could probably give about why his words could be so inflammatory. But at the same time, why his words were so subversive and so attractive because people over the next 150, 200 years just had their belly full of the Caesars who uh, would just show up and, and in fact, Domitian, his says, uh, his, his doesn't even say son of God, it says divine Domitian on his, he just got right, he just skipped the waiting till he died part uh, and go ahead and proclaimed himself. And so I'll, I'll say this too real quick. The book of Revelation, those opening letters to the church at Ephesus, Thyatira, back to Asia Minor. All of those cities are in Asia Minor. They're almost to a, to, to a city, the very same ones Paul had been in. And they're addressing the same Roman imperialism there that Paul first started dealing with some 40 years earlier than that. So, Questions? I did include a little bibliography for you there. Uh, they range all over the place for you, from academic to devotional. If you might want to look at one of those, I can really, I'll go ahead and tell you my, who I lean on the hardest is a English Bishop N.T. Wright, his book on Paul, a biography, and he also has a massive theological study of Paul 
weighs about 20 pounds. I'll bring it one night and let you see it. It's the N.T. Wright. The second one, Paul, a biography by N.T. Wright. Very approachable. He is a scholar. He was the former uh, Bishop of Durham in the Anglican Church. Teaches at Oxford. And uh, fantastic. I, I, the, the question was, why, why was Paul so, I'll summarize your question, why was he so direct? C- can you not, you know, work around the edges a little bit? Uh, some of that is related to Paul's eschatology. He believed the end was upon him. He believed the world was running out of time. So he, in his mind, I don't have time to, uh, to I, I don't... I like it. I like it. Uh, I, I, I just, I, I think there was enough still leftover zealotry in him. And as a Pharisee, there, and, and you can't, we cannot take away that there was a sense in first century Judaism, and you're going you're gonna to laugh at this. How many of you are here uh, for the night we talked about Daniel, the follow-up to Daniel? Remember that? They interpreted the seven... 70 weeks of Daniel as being 700 years. And it had been roughly 700 years from the Babylonians. And they had a sense that this is it. Uh, The world is going to end. Uh, And we all get that feeling when there is so much trouble and so much corruption and nothing is working. It's easy for an entire group of people to say this is you know, my mother-in-law says this to me all the time. Is this the end of the world? And I'm like, no, we're going to have to live through this. You know, uh, we're not getting, we're not going to get out that easy, it appears. Uh, but I think Paul really felt, and we'll get into that in First and Second Thessalonians, where he talks about the Lord descending and like, it, it's happening, you know. And maybe even the idea that when he's younger, in his 40s, 50s, that he's like, yep, it's happening. And by the time he's 60, he's like, oh, I may die before this happens. So his, his, his trajectory changes over time. Okay, next week we'll get back together right here. And if you can't join us here, you can join us online or follow up on YouTube. I'll have this uploaded as well for listening. Thanks for coming tonight. You're dismissed.